Well, good morning. It's great to be privilege. Okay, I'm on now. I asked them to shut me down when I put my foot in my mouth. Um, <laughs> thankfully, I haven't done that yet. I, I, it's, it's great to be here. I thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to be here, to bring you God's Word, to get to know you better. I know it's a little um, disconcerting to be preaching a call, so um, I would ask you to, for a while, forget that I am preaching a call and I'm trying my very best, as I said in the video that I did with Thomas, to forget that I am preaching a call because we are gathered here for something far more important, far more significant. We are here to hear from God. We are to hear, here to listen to what God has for us today. We are here to worship and exalt our sovereign Lord. So I hope, I trust that that would be our focus this morning as we hear His Word. I'd like you to turn then with me to the book of Esther. We'll be covering the whole book of Esther, Lord willing. A um, couple of reasons. First one I said to Sarah was, in case you don't have me back, at least I will not have left any um, loose ends. <laughs> but I think more importantly, I've come to the book of Esther knowing that this pandemic has been filled with a lot of uncertainty and frustration. And in some ways, for you here at Crestwick, it's been even more frustrating and painful because in the providence of God, both your lead pastor and your assistant pastor have followed his leading to move on to other churches in the midst of the pandemic. And so your situation as a church begs the question, where is God? What on earth is He doing? And that is the situation in the book of Esther. The people of God are facing annihilation. They are facing the reality of genocide. And God is not even named in the book. God is, to all intents and purposes, absent in the book of Esther or so it seems. And so I invite you this morning to join me and go back, remember, as it were, what it would have been to be in the world of the Persian Empire ruled by Xerxes of Persia. Now, the text calls the king Aswerus. Um, it's too long for me to pronounce consistently. But more importantly, historians and scholars recognize that King Ahasuerus is actually the same person as Xerxes I, the son of Darius. And so we will refer to him as Xerxes to emphasize that this story records a historical event. It really happened. So let's pick up the story in chapter 2 and verse 7. We meet Esther 
as a beautiful young Jewish orphan, one of hundreds of the most beautiful young women from Pakistan to Turkey, gathered by Xerxes because he was looking for a replacement for Queen Vashti, whom we are told in chapter 1 had been stripped of her royal position because she had dared to embarrass Xerxes by refusing to allow him to show her off at his war council. Now, perhaps Xerxes is trying to console himself after his embarrassing failure at the hands of the Greeks. He had called the war council in preparation for attacking Greece, but Greece had defeated him. And so this mighty emperor went back to Persia with his tail between his legs. So to console himself, he gathered the most beautiful virgins in his empire so that he could forget about the embarrassment. Each woman had a chance to be in the harem for a year, beautified, perfumed for, six, for a year. And he would spend a night with each virgin in search of the replacement for Queen Vashti. And after spending a night with Esther, we are told that Xerxes was so pleased, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, that he stopped the search, made her the queen of the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire of that day. Now, if this were a fairy tale, this is a point where we would say, and she lived happily ever after. But this is not a fairy tale. And the author of the book of Esther does not intend for us to read this or view Esther as if she were an exemplary heroine. In fact, as you read the book of Esther, it's a bit disturbing because Esther and Mordecai seem morally ambiguous. Now, of course, we have to give her a pass for sleeping with Xerxes before marriage and sleeping with a pagan because she had no choice in the matter. However, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 10, we are told that Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So what if she hid her Jewishness? Well, to hide your Jewishness meant a full year, at least, of violating the food laws and participating in pagan worship. It is particularly troubling when you compare her to Daniel and his friends. Contrast is the mother of clarity. We are told in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel and his friends would rather risk the king's displeasure than partake of pagan food. And they, of course, we know that they risked death in order to not participate 
in pagan worship. But here, Esther hides her Jewishness. In fact, the Jewish scholars who were responsible for the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, were so disturbed by Esther's actions that if you read, if you, if you look at the Septuagint version of Esther, you will realize that it's longer because the scholars inserted a prayer that was supposedly from Esther. And that prayer was intended to sanitize Esther's actions. But that simply highlights the problem. And it would appear that the pragmatic and self-serving conduct of Esther and Mordecai would likely be the reason why God is not named in this book. God isn't mentioned because he is not in the thoughts of Esther and Mordecai. And perhaps you and I can understand Esther and Mordecai because we tend to be like them, don't we? We believe in God, but when push comes to shove, we get caught up in our plans and we forget that we are under God's rule to live for His purposes. God is absent from their thoughts, so He is absent in the book. And that feeling that God is absent is heightened as Mordecai gets the Jews into trouble because we are told that he refused to obey Xerxes' command to honor Haman the Agagite. That's in chapter 2, or in chapter 3 and verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, perhaps Mordecai was annoyed because Haman had been elevated to high position when he, Mordecai, had just foiled an assassination attempt against Xerxes and he was not rewarded. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, but he didn't get anything for it. We don't know. But what we do know is that Mordecai's disrespect for Haman so offended the pride of Haman that he didn't just want to reduce Mordecai to submission. He decided that he needed to get rid of all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And so he ordered lots to be cast until they figured out that the 13th day of the 12th month would be the lucky day. And he manipulated Xerxes into ordering the annihilation of all the Jews on the 13th day of the month of Adar, or the 12th month. Now, you might say, man, that's a little overkill, don't you think? But in describing Haman as an Agagite, I think the author 
is interpreting the hatred of Haman as part of a larger continuing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You see, an Agagite, if you know your biblical history, you'd have to go back to 1 Samuel. And remember that Agag was the king of Amalek, whom Saul had captured and whom Samuel had executed. So that there was this centuries-long enmity because Mordecai also happened to be of the tribe of Benjamin and, in fact, perhaps related to Saul. So that there's this, not only the centuries-long enmity, but there is this battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Because if the Jews were to be exterminated, then God's redemptive plan would be stopped. And ironically, the edict went out on the day of Passover, on the 13th day of the first month, on the day when the people of God, wherever they were, would be gathering to celebrate God's great redemptive work that led them out of Egypt. They hear that within 11 months, they would be exterminated. The people of God were facing extinction, and they had no allies to protect them. The king the emperor had ordered their death. The second-in-command had manipulated the king into doing this. The people of God were powerless, and God seemed to be absent. But God was at work, was he not? Because even before Haman had even conceived of the notion of exterminating the Jews, God had already put Esther in the palace. You see, that is the wonder of God's wisdom, God's providence. He had planned all things from beginning to end. But we do need to realize that the sovereignty of God demands responsible obedience. And here's where the story takes a bit of a twist. Because if you look at, Acts, uh, at Esther chapter 4 and verse 11, Esther might have been in a position to do something, but she wasn't willing to do anything. Look at verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. You see how Esther is unwilling to speak. She's giving excuses for not acting. And so Mordecai 
actually has to threaten her. Look at verse um, 13 and 14. Look at what he has to say. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, Esther here is confronted with a choice. Would she die as a pagan? Or would she risk her life by identifying with the covenant people of God, by speaking for them before Xerxes? Indeed, this is the moment that defines Esther as one of God's covenant people. She's challenged to faith and faithfulness to God. What would she choose? Well, let's go on. Look at verse 15. Here's Esther's reply, verse 16. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So they fast. And on the third day, we are told, chapter 5, verse 1, that she dressed herself in her royal robes and presented herself in the inner court Imagine if you were in her place. The royal robes hide the shaking of your knees. You're doing your best to smile. You're wondering, will, this be, will these robes be my death shroud? What will Xerxes do? Chapter 5, we are told, and verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And he even offers to give her anything she wanted. And much to his surprise, he says, will you dine with me today together with Haman? And so they dine together. And again, the king asks her, Esther, what do you want? I'll give it to you. And she asks for yet another dinner, another feast with him and Haman alone. And so Haman, let's remember good old Haman. Haman is euphoric. I mean, wouldn't you be? You've got an exclusive audience with Queen Esther, and you're the only official who's having dinner and a feast with the king and the queen. You must be very special. But that 
excitement, that delight curdled according to verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, at Mordecai's continued disrespect. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. All this is worthless, worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And he decides right then and there that Mordecai must die. And with the advice of his friends, he sets up a pole 75 feet high. Imagine that. Just think of a pole going up to the ceiling on which he would impale Mordecai. And that very day, he had that pole erected with the intention of going early in the morning to see the king to demand Mordecai's death. But we are told in chapter 6, verse 1, that that same night, while, the gallo- while that pole was being erected, Xerxes could not sleep. And so he decides to have the official records of the court read before him. That's like asking for the minutes of the meeting to be read before you. I don't know, but I don't know about the way you take records. I know business meeting records just put me to sleep. Maybe that's what he wanted to do. But while those records were being read, Xerxes learned that Mordecai had foiled an assassination attempt and Mordecai had not been rewarded. And so he asks his valets, who's in the court? And wouldn't you know, Haman arrives just at that moment, ready to ask Xerxes for Mordecai's death. And so they tell him, oh, king, Haman's there. Oh, bring him in, bring him in. I need his advice. And so Xerxes asks Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And in his arrogance, you know what Haman's thinking, right? Who could the king be wanting to honor but me? And so he gives way to his imagination. King, make him king for a day. Look at um, verse 7 to verse 9. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Now, remember, this is Haman 
telling the king what he's imagining in his mind. And as he's saying this, he's imagining wearing those robes. Okay? And the horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials so that I can lord it over that guy. Let them dress the man. Let this noble official be my valet, whom the king delights. Let, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And you can imagine Haman thinking about this in his mind, thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be an awesome day. And Xerxes tells him, brilliant, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. How would you feel? <laughs> the tables were turned. There was no way the king would allow Mordecai to be executed just after he's been honored. And so Haman spends that whole day parading this man whom he hates with all his guts, saying, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It was like a knife twisting in his guts. And so we can understand if he goes home, we are told, chapter 6, verse 11, Oh, verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And his wife goes on to warn him, verse 13, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And you get this sense of foreboding when you're told in verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, while they were warning him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. You feel as if this is not going to end well. And sure enough, while they were drinking wine, chapter 7, Xerxes again asks Esther, What do you want, my dear? And so, chapter 7, verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then Xerxes asks, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And imagine with me the scene as Esther points and says, 
a foe, an enemy. This wicked Haman. And Xerxes realizes that he had been played by Haman. He is so angry that he goes out into the garden to cool off while Haman sits there terrified knowing that the king would not forgive him and so he goes to the only person who could save his life Esther except the problem is as he is falling over the couch of Esther begging for his life Xerxes returns and accuses him of assaulting Esther look at verse 8 Chapter 7, verse 8. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And so they covered his face. He was a dead man walking. And Harbona, the eunuch, tells the king, Moreover, the gallows or wooden beam that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king. He knows how to twist the knife, doesn't he? Is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So he is impaled on the very pole that he had prepared to kill Mordecai. So with Haman dead, Mordecai is given his position of authority. And with the approval of Xerxes, he makes a counter-decree, allowing the Jews to defend themselves. And because they have about 11 months to prepare, instead of the Jews being exterminated, they defeat their enemies. And they commemorate that astounding victory by instituting the Feast of Purim. To remember how God had turned the tables on their enemies and saved them from death. And to this day, the Jews celebrate this feast. Great story, isn't it? But what was it meant to communicate to us? Well, first of all, the most obvious is that it makes us recognize that though God may seem absent, he is nonetheless active. Throughout this story, you recognize the unseen hand of God moving, controlling all events. While men were acting responsibly, Haman had cast lots or poor. That's why it's called the Feast of Purim. It, it's an ironic twist. They cast lots for the luckiest day on which to kill the Jews. Huh. Lucky you. God was working out his purposes. From the refusal of Vashti that embarrassed Xerxes to Mordecai not being rewarded immediately for saving Xerxes, to Xerxes being unable to sleep on the fateful night on which, uh, before Mordecai was to be killed, God was 
at work. Through seemingly insignificant coincidences to deliver his people. And friends, that's still the same God whom we serve and worship and trust today. He's still in control. But here's the second thing we need to realize the only way that we would recognize that God was at work is if we read this book and analyze the story in light of the rest of Scripture. See, if you abstract Esther from the storyline of Scripture, all it is is an awesome adventure story. You wouldn't see God. The only way to see God is if you read it in light of the other 65 books of the Bible. In the same way, we need to learn to interpret life by the light of God's Word instead of using our feeble minds and eyes. William Cooper would say, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. See, the life of faith is a life that is defined and described by scriptures. Trusting God means we let the scriptures define how we view life, how we interpret events that are going on in our life, whether we like what's happening or we don't. And third, some of you might be um, a bit offended by the fact that I interpret Esther and Mordecai as morally ambiguous individuals. But I hope you realize that that's actually what gives you and me hope. Because when we read Esther and Mordecai as upright, righteous people, that kind of disqualifies you and me, doesn't it? Because we don't measure up to those heroes in Scripture. It's a great thing that the heroes that we look to in Scripture are heroes with clay feet. Esther and Mordecai are not particularly exemplary people. They're actually more like pragmatists who forget God. And that's great because they're, they are then just like you and me, people for whom God is unfortunately all too weightless in our lives. But in grace, God treats Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of the Jews better than they deserve. And the fact of the matter is, God treats you and me better than we deserve because God is faithful to His promises. Indeed, God even gives us the privilege of being part of the means by which He accomplishes His purposes, despite our imperfections. The point is that God deals with His people on the basis of His grace and His covenant faithfulness, not our performance. 
And that's awesome. Because if it were based on our performance, might as well give up, right? But the fact that God deals with us on the basis of grace challenges us because His kindness ought to lead us to repentance. And gratitude for the grace of God that has not failed ought to motivate us to greater faithfulness. And in the midst of the temptations to be unfaithful, let's remember that this faithful God is also our sovereign God. Whatever happens, He has our back. And He will work all things out for our good and for His glory as we submit to Him in faith. He will never fail. And if you're wondering, how can I be sure of this? Then I ask you to look beyond the story of Esther to the story of Jesus, a story which is encapsulated in the Scripture reading this morning, Acts chapter 4, where we are told that the Jews, Pilate and Herod, conspired against Jesus. But hear these precious words from Acts 4 verse 28. To do whatever God's hand and God's plan, plan had predestined to take place. Can you imagine that? They did their worst. And God took their worst and used it to accomplish His glorious purposes. Because that deadly miscarriage of justice that led the Son of God who became man to the cross was the very means by which God would be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Because it was on that cross that Jesus paid for our sins. And, on, and after he died, three days later, God vindicated it by raising him to life so that through faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We are united with Christ. We are adopted as sons. God turned the tables to accomplish our salvation through that heinous injustice of the crucifixion of Jesus. That is our God. So let us trust our King. Let us be faithful to him. He is sovereign over all. He reigns and rules over all things for the sake of his church, for the glory of his name. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you in the midst of our struggles, even during times when we feel as if you're not there. 
when we feel as if you've abandoned us or forgotten about us. We thank you that that's just our uncertain, unreliable feelings. The central reality that your word proclaims is that you're always at work. You're accomplishing your purposes, and your purposes are for our good and for your glory. And we need look no further than the cross of Jesus to find confidence and assurance that you are indeed for us. So, Father, you know our hearts. You know the struggles that we are facing right now. You know the pain, the uncertainty. You know everything that's going on. Will you not comfort our hearts? Will your spirit not drive this reality into our hearts? That he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? O oh Lord, strengthen our faith. Orient us to Christ. That we may know the peace that passes understanding that comes only from him so that we may serve your purposes faithfully for our good and for your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.